You're listening to Counter Moves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Counter Moves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Welcome to the latest episode of Counter Moves. And uh, for this episode, I'm joined by one of my close friends, a church member, uh, someone who's been in my small group for like four, almost five years now. And that's my friend Trillia Newbell, which I know many of you are familiar with. Trillia is a writer on issues of race and human diversity. She's written kids' books on the subject. She is a speaker. She's jet-setting all over the United States, it seems like weekly. Uh, And it's just fun to see her kind of ministry just take off in the last few years. And so, Trillia, I want to say thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, well, no, it's just great to have you here. I'm glad that you're in studio so that we don't have to do this over the phone or over some... I know, we can see each other. (laughs) ...over the internet. So today, um, you know, it's it's we're in April of 2018, so we are 50 years uh, downstream from uh, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Right. And so, in many ways, this is kind of a cultural moment. I mean, I, I find it interesting, 50 years later, like, this is still so relevant and so important Absolutely. for us to be discussing, right. um, because I think... Everyone seems to agree there are cultural flashpoints right now that are really challenging and really causing consternation inside the church. Absolutely. And so this question of racial tension and racial reconciliation, I think, is as alive as ever. Absolutely. And I think part of that is because we can't unsee what we see. Right. In other words, we have cell phones that video and right. and we just we we have the social media and and Part of, I think, the elevation, at least for, for this generation that I'm noticing, is that we just we can't unsee what we see. Right, which, which on the one hand is helpful because it makes us confront Absolutely. our culture, but on the other hand, too, it also, uh, it, it, it's what kind of amplifies the conversation because Absolutely. the ubiquity of the conversation, it, it's, always, it's always there, and we can't ever put it aside. And I'm not saying we should put it aside. Right. I'm saying it's always there, and we have to figure out, I think, ever creative ways and ever gospel-centered ways to address the subject. Absolutely. So before we get into the questions of kind of racial reconciliation and kind of living downstream 50 years later from um, King's assassination, I want to first begin talking just very briefly about your testimony. Sure. Because I, I love this. Um, because Trillia and I are like so different. In fact, you tweeted this the other day. Like yes. we're so different, but in Christ we have so much in common. Absolutely. And so I love hearing Trillia's testimony and I asked her to just kind of briefly share it because I just, I love this story. Yeah. And so Trillia, just give us a brief overview of your testimony for our listeners. Sure. Well, to label me, Andrew would call me a radical feminist. (laughs) This is pre-Christ. Yes, (laughs) pre-Christ. So before I was a Christian, I had a a pretty um, 
liberal worldview. Sure. And if if labels sometimes can be helpful just to get, give you a framework of where I was. So I would have been, um, yes, pretty radically feminist and ultra liberal yeah. in my worldview. And one of the things that is just amazing that the Lord did when he saved me. So um, a girl shared the gospel with me at the age of 19, but I um, pushed against that. I was dating someone and didn't want to give up my relationship. And after two broken engagements, mm. I came to know the Lord. And um, I'll never forget hearing Rock of Ages, wash me, Savior, or I'll die. And I knew yeah. at that moment that I needed a Savior, and I couldn't save myself. Well, one of the things that, okay, the Lord radically changed besides he transformed my heart. He really transformed my mind. Mm. And so my worldview began to change. I started to read the scriptures and see um, see that the Lord knitted us together in our mother's womb and so that life began with God before right. the foundation of the world. And and I started to see these things that I, I didn't know, and I wouldn't know. I really wouldn't have known. So... God radically changed me and transformed me. And I will say the end of that story is the guy who I was dating and had the broken engagements with, he became a Christian about a year later. And then a year later after that, he asked me to date. I said no, because I was doing campus ministry and I I was like Paul and didn't want to be... Yeah, I'm just kidding. I, was, <laughs> I didn't want to be distracted, and um, and then a year later he asked again. I said yes, and we've been married for 15 years. Oh, that was third. That was third. Oh my goodness. I <laughs> okay. I don't know if I knew that part of it of your yes. testimony. Okay. Yes. God wow. has done. Miracle after miracle in my life. That's so cool. Yeah. So for our <laughs> listeners, obviously, Trillia and Theron are in my small group and close friends of their family, yeah. and I I did not know that part of it. Yes. Okay. Yes. Wow. That is that's so cool. He's okay. a redeemer. Yeah, no, Thurn is fantastic. Calm yes. Thurn. Awesome, calm Thurn. Yes. Awesome, calm Thurn. <laughs> uh, who has great musical tastes. Yes, he does. I should, I should add as well. <laughs> we both share a mutual love of, of Jack White and emo music. And yes. No one else in my orbit seems to care, but except, yes. except Thurn. Thurn, yes. <laughs> so, okay, we just finished this massive conference in Memphis right. uh, two weeks ago, MLK 50, bringing together. Uh, almost 4,000 evangelicals, 30% minority population there at the conference, which was awesome and fantastic. Yeah. Uh, awesome representation on the stage from all different cultures, I felt like. Um, people have opinions about MLK 50, and, and they share their opinions on social media. Sure. And so it was, again, one of these like kind of cultural flashpoint moments that you have the Gospel Coalition and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission convening this massive conference that was really, I mean, a no-holds-barred conference. It was. Yeah. That really, that, that conf- it, was, it, was, it was confronting. I, I, that's one of the biggest takeaways I have. And I'll actually, later on, I'll tell you kind of one of my big personal takeaways from the conference. Sure. But I would just love to get kind of your takeaway about what are your reflections on the conference? And uh, yeah. what did you find, I guess, perhaps hopeful what, gave, what, what gives you, yeah, hope about the moment that we're in? I mean, did this conference do anything in particular that I think is going to have maybe some repercussions down the line? I think a few things. One is that it, you used the word it was confronting. Mm. I think that the speakers were honest. Yeah. And that's really important. And again, people were honest and shared um, about what we – what we see to be 
problems within the church yeah. and our culture, but within the church that we need to address and really think through. But it was also gospel-centered and hopeful. Right. And I, I think that's important. I think it's important. Why? Because we are we speak a better word. We have the we have the gospel. Mm. We know the end game. Right. So we we can speak with hope and yet truth. Yeah. Truth and love, but we with short up by this hope that right. we have. And so to me, the conference was helpful in that manner because because it wasn't we didn't we didn't um, stray away from the hard topics. Mm. We went straight into it, but we also didn't share it without the hope of the gospel. Right. My takeaway was that I loved that it was honest and hopeful. Um, what I see happening is or in the future, or my hope and prayer, is that we would not just take this conference and pat ourselves on the back and move on, which we don't plan to do. Mm. Um, and that we would take our faith and put it into action. And mm. so I know that the ERLC and TGC were looking at further ways to continue this, not just this conversation, but but to put put feet to what we've learned. Yeah. So we want to equip pastors. We want to equip congregations on how do you how do we take this and actually love our neighbor as ourselves, yeah. which is a command from the Lord. So I'm hopeful and and excited to see what the Lord does beyond yeah. MLK 50. Yeah, I mean, one, and I think that word of confronting is, is as you know, is, is an accurate term because there were things that I recalled hearing that, I mean, I I found like bracing and, and mm-hmm. like in a, in a sense of like, oh man, that that was really, really hard to hear. Mm-hmm. But one of the things, and I, I haven't even shared this with you yet, one of the major takeaways that I had from the conference was someone made the comment, I think it was actually BJ Thompson in the panel that I moderated, yeah. and it really has sat with me. He said something, because I, I moderated a panel on um, race and the family and adoption, right. and he made the observation that like the black family has been essentially under assault for 400 years right? in a North American context. And I'm someone who, like, I, I really cherish and prioritize the family as kind of the nucleus of, of society. And so that was firing on all cylinders with me. And then, you know, you view this with the context of enslaved Africans yep. being forced to come over uh, on Men ships. Men taken away. Men taken away yep. from from their wives, separated from their children, and first off, you, I lack the moral vocabulary to fully comprehend and understand the gravity of all of this. Mm-hmm. But then you realize, okay, so so for four hundred years, the the black family in America began under duress, under attack, and. How is that not going to have ramifications right. 400 years later? And so you know me, I'm like the uber political conservative, and I'm always someone who wants to focus on like individual moral action and say, no, it's individual personal responsibility that matters most. What I came away from the conference was this greater sense of like, yeah, individual agency matters. We can't downplay individual agency. But I also have, and I'm still wrestling with this, mm-hmm. is so 400 years ago, we, we attack people based on their skin color. We undermine the ability of the family to thrive. Uh, we then, you know, fast forward through the Civil War, 
we build an economy yep. on the backs of the of black people and and to the neglect and destruction of the family. Then we have Reconstruction, we have Jim Crow, yep. we have segregation. And so, yeah, individual agency matters. And I'm not downplaying any of that. But it's like, how can we say, looking back at the past, that there aren't going to be kind of social structural ramifications for how black people and how black families have understood their existence in in society down to today. Absolutely. And, and so you see the systemic problems. Right. So when, when someone says systemic racism, if you get to look at our systems and how they've been built, then you can gain understanding. Right. Yeah. If 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 African Americans have been equal in the eyes of the law, let's say just from the 1960s onward, that means we're roughly living 50 years downstream in a truly free context, which means there's 350 years of prolonged uh, structural imbalance that affects how people see themselves in a society, uh, the value that they bring to a society, and quite frankly, kind of the individual psychological self-perception of of how they're perceived in society. That's exactly what I was going to say. I'm so glad you said that because it it's not just how it has affected black African Americans. It, it's not it's also how we are perceived right. and how and how we've been perceived affects how we are treated. Right. And how we are it, it affects getting loans. It affects um how how we are treated by law enforcement. It affects a lot of things. And so I think that we've, we have to understand our history. And I'm mm-hmm. so, I'm, I'm glad that, that BJ said that. Yeah. And, and um, I'm not surprised that he did, just given his love for the family as right. well. Um, but it's important that we understand these things so that we can relate, so that we can also mourn with those who mourn. People right. don't understand often when someone, for example, gets shot <laughs> and half of the United States is mourning and weeping. And I'm obviously talking about an African-American. Right. It's because for for so long, we have been, and we continue to be, um, oppressed just by the color of our skin and, and judged and... Um, and, and profiled, and so our our first response isn't necessarily to to judge. We should we should withhold judgment on the end, whether or not who was responsible for what. Mm. We can't help but mourn. Right, right, and so that's that's exactly right. And um, one of the things I walked away with from the conference was like you know regardless of what all of the facts of every single case are, like there's there's a kind of traumatic grief encounter yeah. that that is very real and sets in maybe before we have we have the ability to know all the details but it's because they're kind of reliving and kind of bringing back to mind past experiences of of, of African Americans in American society right and so i think what i learned in those moments are what you can do in those moments when social media is lighting up is Maybe before we have like all the social media hot takes, it's like express grief, express yes, solidarity. I think that so. says, you know, hey, I don't know what's going on in all of this, all of the circumstances here, but man, I'm with you right now because I know this is this is a cultural flashpoint that's impacting and bringing back 
a lot of baggage from America's past. So yeah, in the, in the aftermath of the conference, you know, I'm a, I'm a reader, so I always want to like digest everything through book. And so I, I emailed um, or I texted Stephen Harris, one of our colleagues, yes. and I was like, Stephen, I need, I need like eight books right now <laughs> that help me understand like the African American experience and and psyche from from the impact of slavery to today. So yeah. so Stephen sent me a bunch of, of books, and I've already purchased some of them, and I'm really interested too. And this is maybe not even interesting to the podcast, but I'm gonna share it anyway, is this question of like the impact of reconstruction in the South yeah. moving forward. So, you know, the, the war ends, uh, slavery is is ended, emancipation is, is the law of the land, but then something happens post 1865 in the American context that still produces these massive structural imbalances. Right. And so I'm, I'm really fascinated to kind of peel back at the historical Good genealogy of all this to see how we get from 1865 to today. Right. So that's just personal interest to me. So kind of a big picture question okay. I have for you. When we look at the state of racial tension in the United States and efforts at racial reconciliation, mm-hmm. um, I guess two questions. Okay. What leaves you discouraged on the one hand yeah. and encouraged on the other? Sure. Well, you're talking about the United States. Okay, right. so there's lots to be discouraged about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the honest truth is I think um, we are at a point socially, politically, where the divide could, almost couldn't be – it's palatable. It couldn't mm-hmm. be stronger. I, I see in our culture – that doesn't necess- necessarily mean just walking down the street, right? We, but, but in our culture in general, there's such a divide – and um, and we just I, I don't want to date the podcast, but we just recently saw that the Starbucks incident oh, yeah. where two African American men are just waiting for a meeting, and two minutes after they they sat down, mm. the police were called. Which so we, we we're in a moment right now where there's there's um. There's bias and profiling, confusion and mistrust. And um, and so if I just looked at our culture, mm. it seems grim. Mm. It does. It, it, seems, it seems grim. But when I look at the church, right. I, I see, I do, that's where I can see some hope. And it's, it's because I, I think we are, I, I don't know, I feel like the church has been rocked. Mm, by yeah. um, this season, right. I said at the beginning of the podcast, we can't unsee what we've seen, and a lot of a lot of our ideologies, what we think and how we what we believe, has been revealed. Yeah, and and I think that's a good thing because when things are in the light, then it can be repented of. Mm-hmm. We can actually deal with things that are in the light, and so for me, that brings that's hopeful. That yeah. brings hope, and then we're also having com- real conversations, no platitudes. Yeah. <laughs> platitudes are not working anymore. Yeah. And we're so we are we're having real conversations about the trauma, yeah. the hurt, the history. Yeah. Like you've just you've in this one podcast in the last 10 minutes you have named slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow. I mean, if, if we can understand our history, yeah. then we will we can understand 
um, each other so much better. Right. And so, so for me, I think these things are hopeful. Yeah. And then, of course, we cannot um, forget that we have the gospel, that Jesus died um, on a cross, bearing the wrath that we deserve, and that he's created one new man. Yeah. And this is essential if for the Christian moving forward, for us to remember to remember the reality that's already been secured for us. Yeah. And so so those things bring me hope. But if I were not a Christian and if I were just looking at cable news <laughs> It'd be pretty bleak. It'd be pretty bleak. Yeah. yeah. I, I would I would I don't I'm not really sure that I could say these things with confidence. I, I think what gives me hope right now, the fact that you know, I, I I've, I grew up in you know predominantly white evangelical contexts in churches that um, that would never have considered themselves overtly racist at all, mm-hmm. but you know also at the same time they they were not really doing anything actively to cultivate an intentionality at the level of their DNA in terms of the church's purpose and and awareness of itself. Right. And so I think right now one of the hope one of the reasons for optimism is we are moving from kind of passive apathetic yeah apathetic you know this understanding of well hey we're not racist we're yeah. not racist okay well true but that might not be enough right now in this moment to simply say we're not racist it's what are we doing to cultivate unity what are we doing to allow for real diversity in the context of unity. Right. And it's a discipleship problem. Yeah. Our churches were built divided. Yeah. And churches were teaching that we were lesser, we being African Americans, were lesser, not almost subhuman. Yeah. And churches have been teaching that interracial marriage is wrong, that that's, that it means that you're unequally yoked, taking a text completely... Mm. And re re um, interpreting it to suit their yeah. own desires. So we've got churches haven't haven't been teaching. They they'll will talk about the Great Commission, but never talk about oh, what does that mean for the nations? Right. Does, right. <laughs> we we there we have not been teaching biblical text. Yeah. And so I think that um, one of the things that I am encouraged about is that. Just recently, um, Ligon Duncan shared a message, and I have not listened to the whole message, but the the two minutes. Oh man, it's powerful! It's so powerful. powerful. But you, you, it it takes scripture. He, yeah. he's been transformed. He's reading the word he's, co- correctly. <laughs> he said, "This isn't this isn't cultural Marxism. This is the dadgum second commandment." Yes, <laughs> like just love your neighbor. Yes, so. And- I mean, we don't have to have this elaborate theology of human diversity. What we, I mean, we want to have that absolutely. But we want to, we want to also practice like neighbor love. Yeah, it's 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 almost too simple, right? But that's why we need. I mean, we are stubborn, sinful people who who we need that simple. (laughs) Well, and, and I know you and I have had this conversation before, where I've remarked that like racism. And making distinctions about people on the color of their skin, it's sinful on the one hand. It's also stupid. Yes. It's just quite frankly stupid because skin color is 
irrelevant to a person's ability uh, to succeed in any given context. I mean, we're we're talking about degrees of melanin in the skin, right? Right. And so, why yeah. should that factor be some particular uh, distinguishing factor that allows us to subjugate one color of skin? over another color of skin. It just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And that's, sin doesn't make sense. Sin is irrational. It's, so it's, it's, re, it's rebellion, it's absolutely. also irrational. It's rebellion and it's irrational. And the, the arrogance and pride of racism needs to be confessed and repented of. And yeah. it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. It well, and be. so that, that was one of the questions I have is we talk about the gospel and racial reconciliation. And you've hinted at this by referencing the, the new man, the one new man. So for our listeners, like when you say the gospel and racial reconciliation, how does the gospel, how does Christ crucify racism and how does he resurrect a new man? I just, I would love to hear the trillion new bell. My version? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I really think if you read Genesis 1 through Revelation, <laughs> You can see God creating a, a people for himself, for his glory, that we sinned and that Jesus died on a cross being the wrath that we deserve. And and it's it's not – if we – you can read Ephesians 2. A lot of people um, read verses 1 through 10 and stop there and say kumbaya, yay. Yeah. But it's it's such – it's much more than just that we've been saved by, by faith. Um, and it's a free gift of God. He's also created one new man, and he's broken down those distinctions, mm. um, Jew, Greek, slave, free, and has created one new man in his body. Now, it's a mystery to me right. how yeah, <laughs> it's all such a mystery, but this is, this is what he says in his, his text that he has done. And, um, and so I, I think really it's, it's the gospel makes it so that those barriers are abolished. Right. And and I think so does the Imago Dei. Right. So I I really don't be, I believe what Jesus accomplished was I guess almost fulfilled, but if we really really want to fully understand the gospel implications of race or or ethnicity, I'll use mm. because a lot of people don't actually like that. Sure. <laughs> okay. Sure. Then we really have to start in Genesis one, right? And that we have all been created in the image of God in the Imago Dei, and that God did not discriminate, right? Against and which again is what you just said a second ago. Racism is caused by a, a simple failure to teach biblical truth. I think we so, got it yeah. wrong from Genesis one. Yes, absolutely. Made in His image, male and female. Doesn't say. Yeah. Uh, th- that male and female, there's no qualifying factor right. on skin color in Genesis one, in, ch- in chapter in Genesis two. It's man and woman, yeah, uh, unqualified. Right. So, creeping racism is a failure to get the Bible correct from the very start. Absolutely, and a desire to, in our pride, to I, I believe you, to oppress, subordinate people for your own good. Yeah. So I believe wholeheartedly that um, I, I I I don't know I, I I just think that there are some who who truly do believe or believed in the past that that they were superior. I think there were many 
who knew the truth and chose to deny it. Mm. And it makes me think of that man, that picture of all of the people saluting Hitler in that Holocaust picture, and the one one man who's crossing his arm. We need more of those one men who are willing to um, cross their arms and and not submit to a culture of yeah. racism, a culture of of pride and arrogance. So so anyways, but the gospel it it is it is what motivates us to have have this conversation because we right. we we know what Jesus has accomplished in his body. If we believe that a Jewish man really did walk perfectly, he lived perfectly for us and then he died and and he does not discriminate. Right. Any any tribe, tongue and nation can know this Jesus, if we really believe that, then then it motivates us to to press into this conversation and yeah. into relationship with one another because he's already, he's accomplished it. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, we, we talk about Christ being the true human, the the fullest, most perfect human. That means there was no internal racism in Jesus. Right. There just wasn't. He's no. perfect. And so being followers of Christ allows us to confront our sin, confront the sin of racism. It allows us to condemn it, uh, but then it also allows us to reconcile. So, I mean, it, right. there's, it, it seems like you know the gospel and, and Jesus himself, from start to finish, like he gives us a pathway to get ethnic relationships correct. Absolutely. And it's interesting because a lot of people do not like to use the language of reconciliation. Hmm. Um, Unpack that. I, uh, yeah, well, I think partly it, they people would say that you can only reconcile what was already equal. And in the United States, and I, I could be getting this a little bit wrong, but in the United States, it, we were never equal. We were never right. seen. So you can't reconcile something. So, th- so you'll hear a term racial harmony, you'll see, I've heard various terms, it doesn't matter. But um, the only reason I have held on to the term reconciliation is because God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. So we see that in the scriptures. And so I'm okay with that term reconciliation. And I do think that God reconciles us first to himself and then to each other. And one of the ways that God can um, build this reconciliation is by revealing our sin, our the sin in our hearts. And I think that if we can gain understanding, a, a true understanding of, of where we've fallen, then we can be reconciled yeah. to one another. And so for me, the term and the use of reconciliation is is okay. Yeah. But I do understand why people hesitate. No, that's I actually had never heard that before, so that's actually really yeah. interesting to me. Um, one of the questions, and we're kind of moving towards wrapping up and concluding, is, I mean, and this is kind of a hard question in light of the critique around reconciliation that you just gave, but will there be a time when the American church has successfully repented enough to where black populations and black Christians feel that, okay, we are, 
we're on the same page now. Does that make sense what I'm asking? It does make sense. And it's a complicated qu- yeah. question. Because repentance because is ongoing. Repentance is ongoing. And you talked about two different things in that. You, you At first, you started out talking about the U.S. and then you started talking about the American church. Right. So the U.S., some people would say reparations. I yeah. can't say that right. We would need a change of policy, look at education reform. I mean, there's loads of... Um, Criminal justice reform, Crimin- uh, criminal justice housing reform, policy. Housing, I mean, <clears throat> we could go on and on and on if we're talking about the United States. If we're talking about the American church, I think that we've seen a lot of uh, statements and signatures and resolutions and, yeah. and from different denominations, and I, I think that's great and important. I think, however, this is almost a boots-on-the-ground local church Mm. issue where we're going to see the most change. It could be in our institutions. We we need to see um, diversity in leadership. We need to see Mm -hmm. diversity in our educational systems. I'm talking Christian organizations, Mm -hmm. Christian institutions. We need to see that there is a – that our academic – Syllabus, syllabi, whatever <laughs> that they that they look diverse, so that we're yeah. we're making sure that we're teaching that um, students, for example, are hearing from black pastors, yeah, are historical black pastors, sure. not just okay. So there's lots of things that we could look at, but if we want to see true and lasting change, besides in our institutions, I think our local churches must be transformed. And that starts with, I think, the Word of God. So, again, if we're if we're only teaching part of the Word, mm-hmm. but we say go and make disciples, it, we're, then we're we're missing. We are missing one. We're just missing out in general. But mm-hmm. but we are not going to see that beauty that we see in the scriptures um, that we will one day see and be with in heaven. Every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together. We're not going to see that if our local churches aren't Don't. first. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is from the Great Commission alone, which is kind of the lifeblood of the local church, right? Go and baptize and teach and disciple to the picture of Revelation that we see of many tribes, tongues, and nations. Racial unity, ethnic unity, diversity, I hear you saying, ought to be an active priority of the church. Because yes. that's what the church is going to look like. Yes. And so this is not just a one sermon a year type of thing. It's a consciousness. It's an intentionality. Yes. It's a part of the DNA of the church. DNA of the church. Yes, absolutely. Consciousness, intentionality, and something that, yes, is not – that it's woven in. It's not February's Black History Month. Okay, right. we are going to talk about right. – or we have that one Sunday or whatever. and But it's something that is talked about and celebrated yeah. and taught. So we we really need a renewing of our minds yeah. on this topic. And practices for that matter Absolutely. too. I remember at the MLK 50 conference, there was a, um, a Memphis choir that came in uh, you know, all African American choir and performing a musical style that I just don't hear in my local church. Sure. And, but what was really helpful at the conference, I forget who said this, was like, yeah, we all have our music preferences. Like, crucify your preferences yes. for the ability for diversity to flourish. 
That doesn't mean that you don't you you eliminate your preferences or that your musical style is completely rejected. Absolutely. It's that like diversity actually means like we're cognizant of every single culture in our church and we want every single culture in our church to be represented down to the level of our music. Absolutely. Good grief. Andrew, this is so good because you're talking about something that gets us into another conversation, but um one of the troubles for a lot of African Americans is that they can feel like they need to assimilate. Right. That was another big thing at MLK 50 yeah. was and and I again like I'm a white man, so I understand this at an intellectual level. Sure. But it got me thinking of what silent things do we communicate that we make African Americans feel that for them to be a part of this church, they need to be like us in every single dimension. You know, and and none of us are thinking, I want the African American person to be like the dominant white majority in the church. Like I don't I don't think that way. But that doesn't remove the fact that groupthink exists subconsciously and people can be made to feel if I'm going to be a part of this group over here and it doesn't have to be even race related it can be anything uh I need to conform to that yeah well not only that it's the norm mm, yeah 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 uh, when a majority culture is the norm and so it is it is a it's oftentimes not even thought it's not something that you're consciously deciding to do. It's right. part of, this is the norm. This is how it's done. And you come along into our norm. Right. And so it can, but to be aware of that is a gift. So yeah. that's good, Andrew, that you're, you're aware of that. I want to go back to reconciliation just for sure. one second. Um, I think I tweeted, and I'm not the only one who's ever said something like this, but proximity changes everything. Mm-hmm. Proximity to people, and it does, about regardless of we're talking specifically about race right now, but regarding so much ethnicity, um, even people who s- suffer on, in various ways, or proximity really changes everything. And you joked at the beginning of the our conversation here that you and I are so different, and and the reality is this is what reconciliation mm-hmm. looks like. It looks like people getting to know one another in proximity to one another, and it changes worldviews, it changes assumptions, it, cha- it, it changes our bias, right. it helps us to love our neighbor. Andrew, I am convinced that you view African-American people different because you've been in proximity mm-hmm. with other... So you're not going to have the same assumptions you're going to be thinking about okay how does it how can how are they affected by this mm-hmm. much more than you, you would if you weren't in proximity mm-hmm. i really believe for our local churches in particular to uh, reform in this area to repent in this area you got to you got to be in proximity right. with those who are not like you and it 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 will build that reconciliation that we hope and pray to see uh, one of the churches I attended um, in my life was uh, incredibly diverse, and it was honestly one of the most uh, incredible experiences of my life. And uh, they would close the service because uh, they had, I mean, they had people from all over the world at this church. Yeah, and they would uh, do the benediction in multiple languages. Yeah, and I just thought that is a true testament 
to the global nature of the church. Right. Um, and a little subtle practice like that, multiple languages being represented, that sends a signal about the church being cognizant of who the church is right. in Christ <laughs> um, and then who the church is going to be in its eternal state. Right. So in some sense, what I hear you saying is we need to be practicing in our local churches what we will be practicing in a glorified state. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. We need to be, which takes, as you've said, intentionality. Mm-hmm. We can not We can say all the things and do nothing. All the things. <laughs> all the things. All the things. I love that expression. <laughs> it is the funniest expression. I love expression. that, yeah. All the things. All, all the, the things. words. All the actions. <laughs> And do absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so we need to we need to say the things and do the things. Do, uh, <laughs> we, we need to stop right there because yeah. that's a good way to end this. Uh, say all the things and do all the things. Yeah. <laughs> um, Trillia, thanks for joining me on this podcast today. Thank you. Uh, I always enjoy laughing with you, learning from you, uh, and it's a joy to be your friend. And so thanks for being with us. Thank you. Well, that concludes this episode of Counter Moves. Thank you for joining us, and we will be back next month.